Chapter Two of the Odd Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Odd Women by George Gissing. Chapter Two Adrift. Just before Christmas of eighteen eighty seven, a lady past her twenties, and with a look of discouraged weariness on her thin face, knocked at a house door in a little street by Lavender Hill. A card in the window gave notice that a bedroom was here to let. When the door opened, and a clean, grave, elderly woman presented herself, the visitor, regarding her anxiously, made known that she was in search of a lodging. "'It may be for a few weeks only, or it may be for a longer period,' she said in a low, tired voice, with an accent of good breeding. "'I have a difficulty in finding precisely what I want. One room would be sufficient, and I ask for very little attendance." "'She had but one room to let,' replied the other. It might be inspected. They went upstairs. The room was at the back of the house, small but neatly furnished. Its appearance seemed to gratify the visitor, for she smiled timidly. "'What rent should you ask?' "'That would depend, ma'am, on what attendance was required.' "'Yes, of course. I think—will you permit me to sit down? I am really very tired. Thank you. I require very little attendance, indeed. My ways are very simple. I should make the bed myself, and—and and do the other little things that are necessary from day to day. Perhaps I might ask you to sweep the room out—once a week or so.' The landlady grew meditative. Possibly she had had experience of lodgers who were anxious to give as little trouble as possible. She glanced furtively at the stranger. "'And what,' was her question at length, "'would you be thinking of paying?' "'Perhaps I had better explain my position. For several years I have been companion to a lady in Hampshire. Her death has thrown me on my own resources. I hope only for a short time. I have come to London because a younger sister of mine is employed here in a house of business. She recommended me to seek for lodgings in this part. I might as well be near her whilst I am endeavouring to find another post. Perhaps I may be fortunate enough to find one in London. Quietness and economy are necessary to me. A house like yours would suit me very well, very well indeed. Could we not agree upon terms within my—within my power? Again the landlady pondered. "'Would you be willing to pay five and sixpence?' "'Yes, I would pay five and sixpence, if you were quite sure that you could let me live in my own way with satisfaction to yourself. I—in fact, I am a vegetarian, and as the meals I take are so very simple, I feel that I might just as well prepare them for myself. Would you object to my doing so in this room?' A kettle and a saucepan are really all, absolutely all, that I should need to use. As I shall be much at home, it will be, of course, necessary for me to have a fire." In the course of half an hour an agreement had been devised which seemed fairly satisfactory to both parties. "'I'm not one of the graspin' ones,' remarked the landlady. "'I think I may say that of myself. If I make five or six shillings a week out of my spare room I don't grumble. But the party as takes it must do their duty on their side. You haven't told me your name yet, Mum." "'Miss Madden. 
My luggage is at the railway station. It shall be brought here this evening. And as I am quite unknown to you, I shall be glad to pay my rent in advance." "'Well, I don't ask for that, but it's just as you like.' "'Then I will pay you five and sixpence at once. Be so kind as to let me have a receipt.' So Miss Madden established herself at Lavender Hill, and dwelt there alone for three months. She received letters frequently, but only one person called upon her. This was her sister Monica, now serving at a draper's in Walworth Road. The young lady came every Sunday, and in bad weather spent the whole day up in the little bedroom. Lodger and landlady were on remarkably good terms. The one paid her dues with exactness, and the other did many a little kindness not bargained for in the original contract. Time went on to the spring of eighty-eight. Then one afternoon Miss Madden descended to the kitchen, and tapped in her usual timid way at the door. "'Are you at leisure, Mrs. Coinsby? Could I have a little conversation with you?' The landlady was alone, and with no more engrossing occupation than the ironing of some linen she had recently washed. "'I have mentioned my elder sister now and then. I am sorry to say she is leaving her post with the family at Hereford. The children are going to school, so that her services are no longer needed.' "'Indeed, ma'am?' "'Yes. For a shorter or longer time she will be in need of a home. Now, it has occurred to me, Mrs. Coinsby, that—that I would ask you whether you would have any objection to her sharing my room with me. Of course there must be an extra payment. The room is small for two persons, but then the arrangement would be only temporary. My sister is a good and experienced teacher, and I am sure she will have no difficulty in obtaining another engagement.' Mrs. Coinsby reflected, but without a shade of discontent. By this time she knew that her lodger was thoroughly to be trusted. "'Well, it's if you can manage it, ma'am,' she replied. "'I don't see as I could have any fault to find, if you thought you could both live in that little room. And as for the rent, I should be quite satisfied if we said seven shillings instead of five and six. "'Thank you, Mrs. Coinsby. Thank you very much indeed. I will write to my sister at once. The news will be a great relief to her.' We shall have quite an enjoyable little holiday together." A week later the eldest of the three Miss Maddens arrived. As it was quite impossible to find space for her boxes in the bedroom, Mrs. Coinsby allowed them to be deposited in the room occupied by her daughter, which was on the same floor. In a day or two the sisters had begun a life of orderly tenor. When weather permitted they were out either in the morning or afternoon. Alice Madden was in London for the first time. She desired to see the sights, but suffered the restrictions of poverty and ill health. After nightfall, neither she nor Virginia ever left home. There was not much personal likeness between them. The elder, now five and thirty, tended to corpulence, the result of sedentary life. She had round shoulders and very short legs. Her face would not have been disagreeable, but for its spoilt complexion. The homely features, if health had but rounded and coloured them, would have expressed pleasantly enough the gentleness and sincerity of her character. Her cheeks were loose, puffy, and permanently of the hue which is produced by cold. Her forehead generally had a few pimples. Her shapeless chin lost itself in two or three fleshy fissures. Scarcely less shy than in girlhood, she walked with a quick, ungainly movement, as if seeking to escape from someone, her head bent forward. Virginia, about thirty-three, had also an unhealthy look, but the poverty, 
or vitiation of her blood manifested itself in less unsightly forms. One saw that she had been calmly, and from certain points of view her countenance still had a grace, a sweetness, all the more noticeable because of its threatened extinction. For she was rapidly ageing. Her lax lips grew laxer, with emphasis of a characteristic one would rather have not perceived there. Her eyes sank into deeper hollows, wrinkles extended their network, the flesh of her neck wore away. Her tall, meagre body did not seem strong enough to hold itself upright. Alice had brown hair, but very little of it. Virginia's was inclined to be ruddy. It surmounted her small head in coils and plaits not without beauty. The voice of the elder sister had contracted an unpleasant hoarseness, but she spoke with good enunciation. A slight stiffness and pedantry of phrase came, no doubt, of her scholastic habits. Virginia was much more natural in manner and fluent in speech, even as she moved far more gracefully. It was now sixteen years since the death of Dr. Madden of Clevedon. The story of his daughter's lives in the interval may be told with brevity suitable to so unexciting a narrative. When the doctor's affairs were set in order, it was found that the patrimony of his six girls amounted, as nearly as possible, to eight hundred pounds. Eight hundred pounds is, to be sure, a sum of money, but how in these circumstances was it to be applied? There came over from Cheltenham a bachelor uncle, aged about sixty. This gentleman lived on an annuity of seventy pounds, which would terminate when he did. It might be reckoned to him for righteousness that he spent the railway fare between Cheltenham and Clevedon to attend his brother's funeral, and to speak a kind word to his nieces. Influence he had none, initiative very little. There was no reckoning upon him for aid of any kind. From Richmond in Yorkshire, in reply to a letter from Alice, wrote an old, old aunt of the late Mrs. Madden, who had occasionally sent the girls presents. Her communication was barely legible. It seemed to contain fortifying texts of scripture, but nothing in the way of worldly counsel. This old lady had no possessions to bequeath, and as far as the girls knew, she was their mother's only surviving relative. The executor of the will was a Clevedon tradesman, a kind and capable friend of the family for many years, a man of parts and attainments superior to his station, in counsel with certain other well-disposed persons who regarded the maddened circumstances with friendly anxiety. Mr. Hungerford, testamentary instruction allowing him much freedom of action, decided that the three elder girls must forthwith become self-supporting, and that the three younger should live together in the care of a lady of small means, who offered to house and keep them for the bare outlay necessitated. A prudent investment of the eight hundred pounds might, by this arrangement, feed, clothe, and in some sort educate Martha, Isabel, and Monica. To see thus far ahead sufficed for the present, fresh circumstances could be dealt with as they arose. Alice obtained a situation as nursery governess at sixteen pounds a year. Virginia was fortunate enough to be accepted as companion by a gentlewoman at Weston Supermare, her payment twelve pounds. Gertrude, fourteen years old, also went to Weston, where she was offered employment in a fancy goods shop, her payment nothing at all, but lodging, board, and dress assured to her. Ten years went by and saw many changes. Gertrude and Martha were dead, the former of consumption, the other drowned by the overturning of a pleasure-boat. Mr. Hungerford was also dead, and a new guardian administered the fund which was still a common property of the four surviving daughters. Alice plied her domestic teaching. 
Virginia remained a companion. Isabel, now aged twenty, taught in a boarding-school at Bridgewater, and Monica, just fifteen, was on the point of being apprenticed to a draper at Weston, where Virginia abode. To serve behind a counter would not have been Monica's choice if any more liberal employment had seemed within her reach. She had no aptitude whatever for giving instruction, indeed had no aptitude for anything but being a pretty, cheerful, engaging girl, much dependent on the love and gentleness of those about her. In speech and bearing Monica greatly resembled her mother, that is to say, she had native elegance. Certainly it might be deemed a pity that such a girl could not be introduced to one of the higher walks of life, but the time had come when she must do something, and the people to whose guidance she looked had but narrow experience of life. Alice and Virginia sighed over the contrast with bygone hopes, but their own careers made it seem probable that Monica would be better off in business than in a more strictly genteel position and there was every likelihood that, at such a place as Weston, with her sister for occasional chaperone, she would ere long find herself relieved of the necessity of working for a livelihood. To the others no wooer had yet presented himself. Alice, if she had ever dreamt of marriage, must by now have resigned herself to spinsterhood. Virginia could scarce hope that her faded prettiness, her health damaged by attendance upon an exacting invalid and in profitless study when she ought to have been sleeping, would attract any man in search of a wife. Poor Isabel was so extremely plain. Monica, if her promise were fulfilled, would be by far the best-looking, as well as the sprightliest of the family. She must marry, of course, she must marry, her sisters gladdened in the thought. Isabel was soon worked into illness. Brain-trouble came on, resulting in melancholia. A charitable institution ultimately received her, and there, at two-and-twenty, the poor, hard-featured girl drowned herself in a bath. Their numbers had thus been reduced by half. Up to now the income of their eight hundred pounds had served, impartially, the ends now of this, now of that one, doing a little good to all, saving them from many an hour of bitterness which must else have been added to their lot. By a new arrangement the capital was at length made over to Alice and Virginia jointly, the youngest sister having a claim upon them to the extent of an annual nine pounds. A trifle, but it would buy her clothing, and then Monica was sure to marry. Thank heaven, she was sure to marry. Without notable event, matrimonial or other, time went on to this present year of 1888. Late in June Monica would complete her twenty-first year. The elders, full of affection for the sister, who so notably surpassed them in beauty of person, talked much about her as the time approached, devising how to procure her a little pleasure on her birthday. Virginia thought a suitable present would be a copy of The Christian Year. She has really no time for continuous reading. A verse of Keble, just one verse at bedtime and in the morning, might be strength to the poor girl. Alice assented. "'We must join to buy it, dear.' she added with an anxious look. It wouldn't be justifiable to spend more than two or three shillings. I fear not. They were preparing their midday meal, the substantial repast of the day. In a little saucepan on an oil cooking-stove was some plain rice, bubbling as Alice stirred it. Virginia fetched from downstairs—Mrs. Coinsby had assigned to them a shelf in her larder—bread, butter, cheese, a pot of preserve, and arranged the table three feet by one and a half, at which they were accustomed to eat. The rice being ready, 
It was turned out in two proportions. Made savoury with a little butter, pepper, and salt, it invited them to sit down. As they had been out in the morning, the afternoon would be spent in domestic occupations. The low cane-chair Virginia had appropriated to her sister because of the latter's headaches and backaches and other disorders. She herself sat on an ordinary chair of the bedside species, to which by this time she had become used. Their sewing, when they did any, was strictly indispensable. If nothing demanded the needle, both preferred a book. Alice, who had never been a student in the proper sense of the word, read for the twentieth time a few volumes in her possession—poetry, popular history, and half a dozen novels such as the average mother of children would have approved in the governess's hands. With Virginia the case was somewhat different. Up to about her twenty-fourth year she had pursued one subject with a zeal limited only by her opportunities. Study absolutely disinterested, seeing that she had never supposed it would increase her value as a companion or enable her to take any better position. Her one intellectual desire was to know as much as possible about ecclesiastical history. Not in a spirit of fanaticism—she was devout, but in moderation, and never spoke bitterly on religious topics. The growth of the Christian Church, old sects and schisms, the councils, affairs of papal policy—these things had a very genuine interest for her. Circumstances favouring, she might have become an erudite woman. But the conditions were so far from favourable that all she succeeded in doing was to undermine her health. Upon a sudden breakdown there followed mental lassitude, from which she never recovered. It being subsequently her duty to read novels aloud for the lady whom she companioned, new novels at the rate of a volume a day, she lost all power of giving her mind to anything but the feebler fiction. Nowadays she procured such works from a lending library, on a subscription of a shilling a month. Ashamed at first to indulge this taste before Alice, she tried more solid literature. But this either sent her to sleep or induced headache. The feeble novels reappeared, and as Alice made no adverse comment, they soon came and went with the old regularity. This afternoon the sisters were disposed for conversation. The same grave thought preoccupied both of them, and they soon made it their subject. Surely. Alice began by murmuring half-absently, "'I shall soon hear of something.' "'I am dreadfully uneasy on my own account,' her sister replied. "'You think the person at South End won't write again?' "'I'm afraid not. And she seemed so very unsatisfactory. Positively illiterate. Oh, I couldn't bear that.' Virginia gave a shudder as she spoke. "'I almost wish,' said Alice that I had accepted the place at Plymouth. Oh, my dear, five children and not a penny of salary! It was a shameless proposal." "'It was, indeed,' sighed the poor governess. "'But there is so little choice for people like myself. Certificates and even degrees are asked for on every hand. With nothing but references to past employers, what can one expect? I know it will end in my taking a place without salary. People seem to have still less need of me," lamented the companion. I wish now that I had gone to Norwich as lady help. Dear, your health would never have supported it. I don't know. Possibly the more active life might do me good. It might, you know, Alice." The other admitted this possibility with a deep sigh. "'Let us review our position,' she then exclaimed. It was a phrase frequently on her lips and always made her more cheerful. 
Virginia also seemed to welcome it as an encouragement. "'Mine,' said the companion, "'is almost as serious as it could be. I have only one pound left, with the exception of the dividend.' "'I have rather more than four pounds still. Now let us think.' Alice paused. "'Supposing we neither of us obtain employment before the end of this year. We have to live, in that case, more than six months. You on seven pounds, and I on ten. "'It's impossible,' said Virginia. "'Let us see. Put it in another form. We have both to live together on seventeen pounds. That is—' she made computation on a piece of paper. That is two pounds, sixteen shillings and eightpence a month. Let us suppose this month at an end. That represents fourteen shillings and twopence a week. Yes, we can do it." She laid down her pencil with an air of triumph. Her dull eyes brightened as though she had discovered a new source of income. "'We cannot, dear,' urged Virginia in a subdued voice. Seven shillings rent. That leaves us only seven and twopence a week for everything—everything." "'We could do it, dear,' persisted the other. "'If it came to the very worst, our food need not cost more than sixpence a day—three and sixpence a week. I do really believe, Virgie, we could support life on less—say, on fourpence. Yes, we could, dear.' They looked fixedly at each other, like people about to stake everything on their courage. "'Is such a life worthy of the name?' asked Virginia in tones of awe. Oh, "'We shan't be driven to that. Oh, we certainly shall not. But it helps one to know that, strictly speaking, we are independent for another six months.' That word gave Virginia an obvious thrill. "'Independent! Oh, Alice, what a blessed thing is independence! Do you know, my dear, I am afraid I have not exerted myself as I might have done to find a new place. These comfortable lodgings, and the pleasure of seeing Monica once a week, have tempted me into idleness. It isn't really my wish to be idle. I know the harm it does me. But, oh, if one could work in a home of one's own!" Alice had a startled, apprehensive look, as if her sister were touching on a subject hardly proper for discussion, or at least dangerous. "'I'm afraid it's no use thinking of that, dear,' she answered awkwardly. "'No use. No use whatever. I am wrong to indulge in such thoughts.' "'Whatever happens, my dear,' said Alice presently, with all the impressiveness of tone she could command, "'we must never entrench upon our capital. Never. Never.' "'Oh, never. If we grow old and useless—' if no one will give us even board and lodging for our services. If we haven't a friend to look to," Alice threw in, as though they were answering each other in a doleful litany, then indeed we shall be glad that nothing tempted us to entrench on our capital. It would just keep us—her voice sank—from the workhouse. After this each took up a volume, and until tea-time they read quietly. From six to nine in the evening they again talked and read alternately. Their conversation was now retrospective. Each revived memories of what she had endured in one or the other house of bondage. Never had it been their lot to serve really nice people. This phrase of theirs was anything but meaningless. They had lived with more or less well-to-do families in the lower middle class, people who could not have inherited refinement, and had not acquired any, 
neither proletarians nor gentlefolk, consumed with a disease of vulgar pretentiousness, inflated with the miasma of democracy. It would have been but a natural result of such a life if the sisters had commented upon it in a spirit somewhat akin to that of their employers. But they spoke without rancour, without scandal-mongering. They knew themselves superior to the women who had grudgingly paid them, and often smiled at recollections which would have moved the servile mind to venomous abuse. At nine o'clock they took a cup of cocoa and a biscuit, and half an hour later they went to bed. Lamp-oil was costly, and indeed they felt glad to say as early as possible that another day had gone by. Their hour of rising was eight. Mrs. Coinsby provided hot water for their breakfast. On descending to fetch it, Virginia found that the postman had left a letter for her. The writing on the envelope seemed to be a stranger's. She ran upstairs again in excitement. "'Who can this be from, Alice?' The elder sister had one of her headaches this morning. She was clay-colour, and tottered in moving about. The close atmosphere of the bedroom would alone have accounted for such a malady, but an unexpected letter made her for the moment oblivious of suffering. "'Posted in London!' she said, examining the envelope eagerly. "'Some one you have been in correspondence with?' "'It's months since I wrote to any one in London.' For full five minutes they debated the mystery, afraid of dashing their hopes by breaking the envelope. At length Virginia summoned courage. Standing at a distance from the other, she took out the sheet of paper with tremulous hand, and glanced fearfully at the signature. "'What do you think? It's Miss Nunn!' "'Miss Nunn? Never! How could she have got the address?' Again the difficulty was discussed whilst its ready solution lay neglected. "'Do read it,' said Alice at length, her throbbing head, made worse by the agitation, obliging her to sink down into the chair. The letter ran thus. "'Dear Miss Madden, this morning I chanced to meet with Mrs. Darby, who was passing through London on her way home from the seaside. We had only five minutes' talk. It was at a railway station. But she mentioned that you were at present in London and gave me your address. After all these years how glad I should be to see you! The struggle of life has made me selfish. I have neglected my old friends. And yet I am bound to add that some of them have neglected me. Would you rather that I came to your lodgings, or you to mine? Which you like. I hear that your elder sister is with you, and that Monica is also in London somewhere. Do let us all see each other once more. Write as soon as you can. My kindest regards to all of you. Sincerely yours, Rhoda Nunn. How like her! exclaimed Virginia, when she had read this aloud. To remember that perhaps we may not care to receive visitors. She was always so thoughtful. And it is true that I ought to have written to her. We shall go to her, of course. Oh, yes, as she gives us the choice. How delightful! I wonder what she is doing. She writes cheerfully. I am sure she must be in a good position. What is the address? Queen's Road, Chelsea. I am so glad it's not very far. We can walk there and back easily." For several years they had lost sight of Rhoda Nunn. She left Cleveland shortly after the Maddens were scattered, and they heard she had become a teacher. About the date of Monica's apprenticeship at Weston, Miss Nunn had a chance meeting with Virginia and the younger girl. She was still teaching, but spoke of her work with extreme discontent, and hinted at vague projects. Whether she succeeded in releasing herself the Maddens never heard. It was a morning of doubtful fairness. 
Before going to bed last night they had decided to walk out together this morning and purchase the present for Monica's birthday, which was next Sunday. But Alice felt too unwell to leave the house. Virginia should write a reply to Miss Nunn's letter, and then go to the bookseller's alone. She set forth at half-past nine. With extreme care she had preserved an out-of-doors dress into the third summer. It did not look shabby. Her mantle was in its second year only. The original fawn color had gone to an indeterminate gray. Her hat of brown straw was a possession forever. It underwent new trimming, at an outlay of a few pence, when that became unavoidable. Yet Virginia could not have been judged anything but a lady. She wore her garments as only a lady can. The position and movement of the arms has much to do with this, and had the step never to be acquired by a person of vulgar instincts. A very long walk was before her. She wished to get as far as the Strand bookshops, not only for the sake of choice, but because this region pleased her and gave her a sense of holiday. Past Battersea Park, over Chelsea Bridge, then the weary stretch to Victoria Station, and the upward labour to Charing Cross. Five miles at least measured by pavement. But Virginia walked quickly. At half-past eleven she was within sight of her goal. A presentable copy of Keeble's work cost less than she had imagined. This rejoiced her. But after leaving the shop she had a singular expression on her face, something more than weariness, something less than anxiety, something other than calculation. In front of Charing Cross Station she stopped, looking vaguely about her. Perhaps she had it in her mind to return home by omnibus, and was dreading the expense. Yet of a sudden she turned and went up the approach to the railway. At the entrance again she stopped. Her features were now working in the strangest way, as though a difficulty of breathing had assailed her. In her eyes was an eager yet frightened look. Her lips stood apart. Another quick movement and she entered the station. She went straight to the door of the refreshment-room and looked in through the glass. Two or three people were standing inside. She drew back, a tremor passing through her. A lady came out. Then again Virginia approached the door. Two men only were within, talking together. With a hurried, nervous movement she pushed the door open and went up to a part of the counter as far as possible from the two customers. Bending forward she said to the barmaid, in a voice just above a whisper, "'Kindly give me a little brandy.' Beads of perspiration were on her face, which had turned to a ghastly pallor. The barmaid, concluding that she was ill, served her promptly and with a sympathetic look. Virginia added to the spirit twice its quantity of water, standing as she did so half-turned from the bar. Then she sipped hurriedly two or three times, and at length took a draught. Color flowed to her cheeks, her eyes lost their frightened glare. Another draught finished the stimulant. She hastily wiped her lips and walked away with firm step. In the meantime a threatening cloud had passed from the sun. Warm rays fell upon the street and its clamorous life. Virginia felt tired in body, but a delightful animation, rarest of boons, gave her new strength. She walked into Trafalgar Square and viewed it like a person who stands there for the first time, smiling, interested. A quarter of an hour passed while she merely enjoyed the air, the sunshine, and the scene about her. Such a quarter of an hour, so calm, contented, unconsciously hopeful, as she had not known since Alice's coming to London. She reached the house by half-past one, bringing in a paper bag something which was to serve for dinner. 
Alice had a wretched appearance, her head ached worse than ever. "'Virgie,' she moaned, "'we never took account of illness, you know.' "'Oh, we must keep that off,' replied the other, sitting down with a look of exhaustion. She smiled, but no longer as in the sunlight of Trafalgar Square. "'Yes, I must struggle against it. We will have dinner as soon as possible. I feel faint.' If both of them had avowed their faintness as often as they felt it, the complaint would have been perpetual. But they generally made a point of deceiving each other, and tried to delude themselves, professing that no diet could be better for their particular needs than this which poverty imposed. "'Ah, it's a good sign to be hungry,' exclaimed Virginia. "'You'll be better this afternoon, dear.' Alice turned over the Christian year, and endeavoured to console herself out of it, whilst her sister prepared the meal. End of chapter 2